Well, hello and welcome to the second of two episodes we have with Dr. Kyle Strobel. Hello, Michael. Hey, hey, hey. Now this week, again, like we said, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, you got to pause this and go back and listen to it. Um, we, we really kind of just jump right in this week talking about spiritual formation and the church. Michael, what's one thing you learned from the podcast episode this week that uh, you really want people to, to be listening for? I, I just loved, um, yeah, Kyle starts talking a, a bit about uh, kind of the the term spiritual formation mm-hmm. and some of the ways that um, that has become this kind of earning. Yes. Um, yes and yes. and um, it, it and he kind of gets into this idea of what does it mean to actually abide? Yeah. Um, what does it mean to um to not see your your Christian journey and the end goal of your Christian journey to actually like pop pop yourself up. Right. Um, or prop yourself up, but instead, um, you know, to actually just sit with the Lord and let him do all the propping. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought that was really good, yeah. good stuff he was talking about. A lot of talk about prayer in this week's episode as well. And so again, another plug for the book. He didn't ask us to plug the book. He wasn't like, Hey, can you guys make sure you plug my book? <laughs> I just, I think we both endorse this book. If, if we yeah. could, if we had the clout to endorse a book, this would be the one we endorse where prayer becomes real how honesty with God transforms your soul. And you can pick that up Amazon bookstores everywhere, you know? And again, a lot of stuff he says this week is like pause worthy, like pause it, process it, jump back in, listen on half speed. So you make sure you get it all. (laughs) Cause it is, it is quite a bit and make sure you listen next week where Michael and I kind of go back and talk through some of the things that we learned from Kyle and some of the things that we want our community to wrestle with as we move forward on this journey. So enjoy And we will see you next week and every week after that. Yeah. You know a little bit about our story. Like we are a church plant and, you know, Mm. we are kind of excited about the opportunity that we have to to do church, how we think the Bible calls us to do church. And Mm. you've nailed that in this conversation saying, you know, spiritual theology and growth and things like that. So what would you say to a congregant listening who has been with us and has heard that we want to kind of start exploring some of these things? What would you say to that congregant who's a little hesitant about where we maybe want to go with some of these things? You know, I would say at its heart, what the great gift of this focus, kind of recovering this emphasis is and will be is that we just don't pass over things in scripture any longer. Mm. Like it's truly amazing how, how much of the evangelical church just passes over things in scripture and never pays attention to them. Mm. That when we hear walk in the spirit, we say, Oh yeah, sure. And move on Mm. rather than saying, well, wait, what does that mean? Yeah. And, And I think that's what we need to be giving ourselves to the question is, well, what does that actually mean? Right. What is what does abiding mean? You know, when Paul, you know, to to turn to a, a passage that that I've been reading recently, you know, in Second Corinthians six eleven down to seven two, Paul says things like, um, "Open wide your heart to us," but you can't, Corinthians, because of your affections. Well, let's just stop and ask the question. Well, what does it mean? that your affections, so the loves of your heart, are so misordered that your heart isn't able to open large, wow. open wide in love. And then why in 7.2 does he say, say, make room in your hearts for us? Mm. See, the problem that we have in evangelicalism is we presuppose we're the Bible people, and therefore we take the Bible seriously, when quite often we don't. Mm. 
Mm. Quite often we take the Bible seriously by just saying we, we prioritize the sermon or something like that. I've lived my entire life in the evangelical church and never once has anyone ever talked to me about what it means to open wide your heart or make room in your heart for someone. Quite honestly, most times that's been read. It's been read like a nice hallmark moment Paul's had. Like, oh, Paul, that's nice. You know, make room in your heart for us. What does it mean to make room in your heart for another? And why does Paul think that my affections, my loves are somehow restricting my ability to open wide? Well, spiritual formation is simply going to say, we need to answer that question. Mm, (laughs) And it probably means something. Like we actually have to take the Bible seriously on this stuff. The Bible is actually helping us understand what it means to abide. And so then it means I, I have to do more than merely show up, learn information and move on. Like the Christian life is more than just kind of putting a check mark next to doctrinal beliefs and theological judgments. Mm. Like I actually have to learn about living in the presence of God. Yeah. And that happens in those moments where you are doing some of those quote spiritual disciplines, but also like, it happens in community. So I'd like to ask mm-hmm. a little bit about that. Like what is the role of like receiving the life of Christ and receiving God's life and, and how does it play out specifically and uniquely in community? Yeah, it's interesting how, how scripture thinks about this because, you know, you get the image of we are the body of Christ growing up into him who is our head, right? And what's interesting about that passage is, is it requires the whole body for any mm. of us to grow up into him, Right. So this is not merely a kind of me and Jesus mentality that we find in scripture. It's that I belong to you and you belong to me and we actually need each other. It means sin is a corporate issue. That's your sinfulness doesn't just affect you. It affects the entire body of Christ. It means that when you think about how, um, like, let's let's say if, if you think about how the early evangelicals would look at this and the Puritans would look at this. So I think about a book about like there's a, one of my favorite historic spiritual texts is Richard Baxter's A Christian Directory. And Baxter organizes the book around four ideas. The first is what he calls Christian ethics, which is a spiritual formation. So this is kind of individual formation stuff. The very next um, section of the book is what he calls Christian economics which is spiritual formation for the family. Mm. So the economy, which is a household term. So now we're thinking, well, because the, you know, when you think in, a, in a, the order of society, you have an individual and you have the family life. Well, now he has a whole section on, well, what does it mean to be a family? And the, you know, it's funny because the, the Puritans would often look at the monastery and say, good idea, bad application. The, the, the monastery is the family. Like mm-hmm. this is this is the people of God that live according to a rule of life that are formed around a, a head, which is the in the you know in that context that's the father that kind of organized this community around faithfulness and mission and all these things. And then you had um, what he called Christian ecclesiastics, which is the church formational life, and then eventually a Christian politics, which was kind of life in the world. But those first three are very interesting. These three spheres: you have the individual, you have the family, and then you have the church. And for, for the Puritan context, they would look at these three and say, if, if something goes wrong at any of these spheres, the whole thing will be lost. Wow. And so in, in an early evangelical context, they would tell the individual, you should have times of silence and solitude. 
which is astonishing because they didn't have electricity. <laughs> so how hard was silence? You know, I mean, <laughs> but they still, I mean, I have these letters from Jonathan Edwards to his, his, his children saying things like, you know, you must get away from the chaos of this world. And I'm just going, what kind of chaos mm. are you talking about? Like that? Wow. Like, wow. If they thought you need, and he would say, you know, take a weekend away, take some time in solitude, really consider how much your, your sin, even just previous sins, how much that has kind of warped your heart, how much that has formed your life. Mm. And this actually goes back, you know, one of the, one of the really crazy um, presuppositions I hear in the church is that I don't have to kind of think about my, my previous sins anymore because God's forgiven them. Mm. Um, Especially my pre-converted sins. And that, that's crazy in part because, you know, scripture just clearly denies that, you know, in first Corinthians eight and 10, we find the weaker brother is the one whose pre-converted paganism has still shaped his conscience to the, to, to, to what is false. Wow. Mm. It has shaped his soul in such a way that he can't actually even hear the truth anymore. And that like, so scripture just t- totally annihilates that idea. But for someone like Edwards and early evangelicals, they would say it's because God's forgiven your sins that you have to remember them. Because again, we have to walk a path of seeing how desperately we need forgiveness in order to grow in love. And so we often find early evangelicals pressing their congregants and their people to really wrestle through what is what is the depth of, of what is going on in my life. This is where journaling started. Mm. Journaling was a spiritual practice of Puritans to tell their stories and to wrestle with God through what has gone on in their lives. But then we also have the kind of family disciplines, like what does family life look like? Now, this is a little more of the kind of what does corporate life look like in miniature? And the, the Puritans would also look at the family as kind of the church in miniature. Mm, that's cool. And then a corporate disciplines, corporate disciplines are, are, you know, and something, you know, what's interesting is we think of fasting, for instance, as an individual discipline, where actually biblically it's a corporate discipline much more. Mm. And historically it's a corporate discipline. I mean, again, for the early evangelicals, they would have fast days and fast seasons be, as, as, a, as a group, because it would much more have to do with the kind of, life of the church and the corporate life of what was going on in the world, um, you know, in response to a pandemic, for instance, might be a good reason to have a corporate fast and prayer for God, um, to God. So, um, you know, there's, there's all these kind of elements that show up in, in what we, what the, tradi- the tradition would call cultural, cultural or corporate liturgies, right? So when you think of the sermon, when you think of songs, when you think of even announcements, right, those are part of the kind of work of the people together to, to take on a form of life together. Mm. My worry is that we see, we don't think that work is our work. We think it's the work of the people that run the church or something like that. And so we, we see people up there doing work and we see us kind of receiving the work that they're doing rather than entering into it. I mean, that would be again, a difference between, I'm not even sure what to call that. I won't even be a spiritual discipline, but that's highly passive versus going to church as a means of grace mm. means every element of the service is a means of my drawing near to God. Mm. Um, and again, remember that's the imperative of Hebrews, right? Whereas the, the warning of the book of Exodus is don't draw near lest you die. That's the warning they get at Sinai. The, the command in the book of Hebrews is draw near boldly. Mm. And the difference is um, someone greater than Moses has ascended the mountain. <laughs> that, that your great high priest has gone beyond the veil, therefore boldly ascend. And so 
we we boldly draw near to God corporately. And, and there's a reason why every church service is a reenactment of the Exodus. You know, every church service is a, is a group of people who come through the waters of the sea, the waters of their baptism, and they praise God in song. They journey to the mountain to hear the word of the Lord, partaking of spiritual food and spiritual drink, as Paul says. Well, as Stephen declared in his speech before he was martyred, he tells us and he reminds us that the problem with Israel in the wilderness is that they turned back in their hearts to Egypt. Mm. And so as we give ourselves to the God who took us out of the era of death, the land of slavery, Egypt, and he's delivering us to the promised land, mm. he is revealing to us that, that our hearts have turned back to the world. Our hearts have turned back to Egypt. Mm. And even as Moses says in Deuteronomy 8, 2, the reason God leads them this way is to show them what is in their hearts. Mm -hmm. And so the goal is not merely to show up to a place and just kind of do a bunch of Christian-y things. I need to, to be watchful, as Paul says in Colossians 4, 2, to be watchful of my heart in prayer. When I'm singing, I need to be watchful. Is my heart turning back to the world? Is my Are my lips moving, but my heart far from him? Mm -hmm. You know, if I come to the table, am I present to the Lord there? Am I present to my brothers and sisters here as I listen to the sermon? You know, what what is actually going on? Because these, it's not, I'm not merely listening to a lecture. I'm not merely kind of doing stuff because Christians do it, right? The goal is to draw near. Mm. And the temptation is always to use spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines as a way to manage God, mm. as a way to do Christian stuff and and use it precisely as a way to hide rather than drawing near into mm. the truth. When God is very clearly revealed in scripture, the goal is to reveal the truth, um, to show them what is in their hearts. I mean, even if you think probably the most explicit passage in all of scripture about what scripture does, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, when it's when we're told it's a double-edged sword that pierces you, the explicit goal is that the thoughts and intentions of your heart are laid bare. Mm. So if you're listening to a sermon, the goal is that the thoughts and intentions of your heart rise to the surface and that you are watchful. Well, you know, okay, what does it look like to be a kind of person that can do that? Hmm. What does it look like to be the kind of person that's open to that? What if, as Paul says, the affections of your heart don't allow your heart to open? Hmm. Right? Well, what do you do? But again, these are all the sorts of questions that we have to ask as the people of God that unfortunately... Because, and I say this as a theologian, um, theologians, because our academies have pushed spirituality and spiritual theology to the side and have stopped including it in theology, that theologians have stopped believing these questions are the questions they have to answer. Mm, wow. Um, Bible folks aren't answering them. Theologians aren't answering them anymore. So the question is, where who answers these questions? And the reality is, this is precisely the kind of questions that Jesus presses us on. And it's precisely the neglect of these questions that God continually critiques and attacks his own people, eventually telling them things like, I don't care about your stupid worship services. I don't want your stupid sacrifices, right? I want a, a, a broken and contrite heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Well, that that requires a, a kind of self-knowing and a, an ability to offer myself in the truth, an ability to, to see what is in my heart, which is the very thing God has told us he's trying to do. 
And so this is why we need to give ourselves to these things. This is just, it gets to the fundamental center of what scripture is about. Yeah. It, it seems like, um, what you're bringing up is kind of a, a new, it's not, it's actually not a new way. Um, it's a new way for us, <laughs> but it's probably an older way actually. Um, but what you're bringing up is this way of, of not just passing the things of scripture, not just passing by the things of God, the things that, that the Lord is trying to, to even well up in our hearts, but instead actually stopping for a moment to take a look (laughs) at -hmm. what God means when he says some of these things like abide in me, what does that actually mean? Um, and so, you know, for the average listener out there, they may have after this conversation be thinking, Oh my goodness, like, yeah, I want that. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I don't know the first step. I don't know where to go first. So here's my question for you. Um, what resources might you kind of lead somebody to as kind of a first step, whether that's, um, you know, maybe, um, some books or some scripture verses or, um, you know, maybe some of the church fathers and mothers, or maybe a spiritual director. I mean, I don't know what, what would you maybe as a kind of a first step into this, this, new old way. <laughs> um, what, what might you say? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of different ways you can go with that. I mean, I think when, so one of the, one of the books I did that was very purposeful um, towards this question was formed for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And the reason I wrote that book is that I wanted evangelicals to simply ask the question, if I lived 300 years ago as an evangelical, what would I have assumed is obvious? And it's all this stuff. Like, this is just what we did. And it focuses on Jonathan Edwards, but quite honestly, Edwards is not all that unique in this stuff. Like he's carrying on the Protestant evangelical tradition, um, the kind of Puritan tradition that became evangelicalism in the United States, the kind of what we now know in the States as evangelicalism. Mm. And I simply wanted to confront us with what we knew to be true. And so this is what, you know, there's a there's a, a kind of um, a line that we talk about around Talbot about the sanctification gap. Mm-hmm. And and the <laughs> that phrase actually comes from a guy named Richard Lovelace, who mm-hmm. in his book, The Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, who, who Tim Keller actually kind of points to as one of the most important books he read as a seminary student. Mm-hmm. He coined the term and for Lovelace, Loveless used it differently than we use it at Talbot. For Loveless, the gap was a gap of knowledge that we have. Because Loveless became an evangelical and was so excited because he's like, we have all these deep and profound resources about the spiritual life. And he started talking to pastors and he realized none of them knew any of them existed. Mm. <laughs> and he's like, what's wrong? Like, why? Like, and he, he was, he kept on running into evangelicals who acted like we didn't answer all these questions before. He goes, <laughs> have you not read any of this stuff? And so part of the reason I wrote that book was to simply confront us with, again, if, if 300 years ago, if we were evangelical, what would he have assumed is true? We assume that silence and solitude was a necessary reality of the Christian life. Mm. Assume that meditation was a fundamental reality for the Christian. Would assume, even though there's words like this, again, like spiritual have been caught up with people that, again, don't know what these words mean and have problematic understandings of them. But for the Protestants, the spiritual discipline, if we use that language, is contemplation. Mm. Because Paul says to set your mind on things above. Right? So again, just like spiritual every Christian has a view of contemplation. Mm. There's non-Christian views of contemplation. Right. Um, but if you, you know, to borrow um, a, 
Andrew Louth's definition. For Christians, contemplation is con, which means with, and templum, which means temple. And so if you think of, um, of Psalm 27.4, the goal is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire into his temple. That's contemplation, mm-hmm. definitionally. That's just what it is. To not give yourself to contemplation would be simply to reject what scripture says. Now you could give yourself to contemplation badly, right? (laughs) Just like you give yourself to prayer badly. (laughs) But it's interesting that today we often demonize things like contemplation because people have misunderstood it and mischaracterized it. Mm. That's just a bad reason to to get rid of something. Mm. You know, Jonathan Edwards, it's funny. Jonathan Edwards was attacked. Um, For those who don't know Edwards, Edwards lived from 1703 to 1758. He was one of the chief architects of the great awakening. Mm. And, um, what, he's an interesting figure because he really is one of the most important forefathers of American evangelicalism. And, you know, he was a contemporary with Ben Franklin, for instance, like this is that era of early pre-America, but coming into early America. Edwards, it was, he has a really fascinating notion when, when he was attacked. And the reason why he was attacked is he, he was a defender of the revivals. When the revivals exploded, suddenly tens of thousands of people are being converted. And then no one had ever seen anything like this. People thought the world's ending, like God's coming. He's, you know, awakening his people. It was crazy. And he was attacked because there was all sorts of crazy stuff that started happening. (laughs) People were burning books. People were saying heretical things. All this stuff started happening. Edwards's response, I think, was so brilliantly insightful. He says, you can never reject a movement because there's excesses spiritually and because there's heresy. Because one of the things you're that's you can guarantee is whenever God does a work, Satan will be right there mm-hmm. trying to warp that work. Yeah. You never reject a movement because of these things. You reject those things. Yeah. Mm. And so the people that have rejected spiritual have never bothered understanding it. Right. What they do is they look for the excesses and they reject them. Wow. And that is precisely according to Edwards, what Satan wants them to do. They're actually playing into satanic purposes when they do things like that. Mm. And when Edwards wrote the book Religious Affections, one of the great classics of evangelicalism, Religious Affections, a work where Edwards is trying to think evangelically and theologically about how do we discern the spirit. Mm-hmm. And so, because it's hard, right? Because there are tens of thousands of people becoming Christians in his day. And he goes, I don't want to be duped. Some of these might be just doing kind of mob mentality. They did it because they were a part of a fervor of people who were excited about something. Like, is that the spirit? Is it not? Like, how does the spirit work in a soul? Like, those are the questions he's wrestling with. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, you know, I would say first thing you could do is look for resources that maybe help you kind of learn, like, what? why did we care about these questions? And why did we always think the Bible forced us to care about these questions? But then I would attend to your own spiritual life very carefully and just really think through what is what does it mean for me to give myself to Christ? And do I do that actually? Or do do the things I give myself to, the spiritual practices, whether that's going to church or reading my Bible or prayer, whatever, do they actually become a way of not drawing near to him, mm-hmm. but of trying to manage him? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, for a lot of my students, it's very interesting. So I have seminary students and um, seminary students, you know, they'll come and they'll spend a lot of time trying to understand the atonement. You know, so what did Christ's work on the cross really do for me? Right. Praise God. That's great. That's a great thing. I'm a theologian. I love that kind of work. <laughs> the problem is when they go to pray, they try to atone for their sins. 
<laughs> and so they've they spent all this time learning doctrine and it hasn't shaped their lives. Mm. And what they don't yet discover is that in the presence of God, their their written and explicit theology falls to pieces. And suddenly a much deeper theology of the heart comes out. And in God's presence, they start trying to manipulate him. So mm -hmm. they start using their words like Adam did in the garden to try to manage and manipulate God. Wow. Or oftentimes they turn against themselves. So they become very harsh on themselves, which is a kind of paganism. It reminds me of the prophets of Baal whipping themselves before him. It's almost like what they imagine is that if I'm harsh on myself, maybe God will put the thunderbolt down. Wow. And so again, notice how they're not, they're not giving themselves, they're not drawing near boldly to the throne of grace because they have a great high priest. Or to put it another way, I would say they don't draw near because they look at their lives and they feel inadequate, which means they've stopped praying in Jesus's name and started praying in their own name. Hmm. Praying in Jesus's name isn't ending your prayer in the name of Jesus, although it probably does include that. To pray in Jesus name is to realize you draw near in the name of another, not your own. Wow. that you draw near to the father in the life of another, not your own. And so you can look at the truth. And so if you pray and you realize, huh, the last 20 minutes, my mind's been wandering and I've been thinking, do the Lakers have enough depth this year to really take it? You know, or <laughs> will, will, will Anthony Davis's body hold up for a season? Are we, you know, <laughs> yes. or are the Dodgers going to win, you know, the next game, you know, if you need to stop and say, wow, Lord, look at this. <laughs> I can't even focus on you. Look at what's in my heart. Look at all these things. Or if you realize you've been thinking about your calendar and how you're going to order your week and oh, I got to do this, I got to do this. And you realize that in the presence of God, you, you feel like you are out of control. And so you, your heart turns to all sorts of things you feel like you have control over. Mm. Now, there's a kind of idolatry here that you can name those in prayer. If you're tempted to fix them, you're tempted to not abide in Jesus. Mm. You're tempted to believe yeah, yeah, without you, I could do nothing, Jesus, except manage my sin. <laughs> wow. And if you could do nothing, managing your sin is probably really high up on that list, <laughs> you would imagine. And yet you see like, wow, Lord, I've got all these deeply pagan beliefs. Or if you don't believe God can handle, yeah, that, that's interesting. You have a very small God. Or I, my favorite is, I can't be, because I hear this from students all the time, you know, I can't really be honest, but it doesn't feel reverent. Well, the opposite of honesty is dishonesty. It's not lacking reverence. Yeah. Um, mm. It's interesting that you equate dishonesty with reverence. Mm. <laughs> that probably says much more about how you managed your father when you were a teenager mm -hmm. who, who probably, who genuinely maybe couldn't handle the truth of your life. And you just kind of thought it's more reverent to, to keep him in the dark. Well, again, that's interesting that you're projecting that on God because that is a very small God you have. And again, you find yourself praying in your own name rather than in the name of Jesus. Mm. And so we really need to wrestle through like, because, you know, I'd say for the average person, the average person is actually giving themselves to quite a lot on paper. I'd say the average Christian is going to church. They're reading their Bible somewhat. They're praying somewhat, right? Those, 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 are, those are all good things. They're, they're giving their money to somewhat. They're doing, you know, but are you actually giving yourself to those things? Are your lips moving, but your heart's far from him? Like, is your heart far from these things? Have they become the equivalent of how Israel used the temple? Where instead of, um, you know, the sacrifices in the temple were always mean. The verb sacrifice means to bring near. You were supposed to bring yourself near. Mm. 
Mm. That's that's what it was. <laughs> but you you could turn sacrifices in a way to placate an angry deity. Mm. God's angry at me. I sinned again. I'll kill this animal and that'll deal with it. I hit a couple buttons, pull a couple levers and leave and I feel better about myself. Is that what church has become for you? Like, is this church a place to feel better? Do you give money because it placates your guilt? Mm. It silences your conscience. Well, now we're, that's paganism, right? That's, wow. that's the gods are angry. How can I manage them? Right? That simply isn't Christianity. It isn't believing the gospel. If you believe the gospel all the way down, you draw near in the name of another and you draw near in the righteousness of another. And that allows you to name the truth. And so we need to be able to then begin to name and draw near the, to, the, to the reality of my life. Where now my life and the truth of myself become the kind of context for my life with God. Mm. So when I pray, I don't pray like a good Christian should pray. I pray like I can pray. <laughs> um, and it's probably not what a, how a good Christian would pray. Uh, whatever that fantasy is in my mind of what a good Christian would be like. If I'm angry, I have to come in the truth of my anger in prayer. If I'm bored and impatient, I've got to come that way in prayer. There's there, Because there's no other way I can come in prayer. Mm -hmm. If I come another way, I don't actually show up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so I would say turn to resources that allow you to enter the truth. You know, if I'm going to read my Bible, am I reading the Bible as the Bible itself declares I need to read it, which is before the face of God, before the face of Christ, right? That's 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. And do I read it in the spirit? And therefore, do I allow the thoughts and intentions of my heart to be laid bare where I am left naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom he must give, to whom I must give an account? That's Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Mm. If I'm not reading in that way, then I'm probably not reading it as God's word. And I'm probably reading it as a way to, to check a box yeah. or a way to feel better about myself. And it's become a tool of the flesh rather than a, a kind of something I sow in the spirit, to use Paul's language. Was So you mentioned a lot about prayer. Was that kind of like your inspiration and like your impetus for writing this new book? Like the way that you were encountering your students' prayer life? Yeah, yeah. So prayer, I think, is particularly interesting because for, for, as the way I understand it, prayer is your kind of Christian life in miniature. So if, if you want to know how you're tempted in the Christian life, just pray. <laughs> and prayer will reveal the truth very quickly. The problem with most people's prayer lives is they're entirely isolated there. No one knows what their prayer lives are like. It's interesting what, that we just don't talk about this with others. And a lot, all the kind of fleshly stuff of our Christian life comes out in prayer. And this, again, this is why they're trying to atone. My students are trying to atone for their sins or they're just talking to themselves when they pray, get your act together, wake up. <laughs> they're just kind of talking to themselves, you know. Um, you know, they're giving themselves pep talks and trying to be better prayers. And so I, and I do think prayer is fundamental, you know, with, and the reason why it's so fundamental is if, if every spiritual practice we do, you know, fasting, reading your Bible, listening to a sermon, if all of it is about abiding and drawing near, then it's all kind of a, a, a means of praying. Right? They're all a means of, of communing with God in that mm -hmm. regard. And that means we have to really learn what, what it means when Paul says, when you pray, be watchful. Carefully consider the truth about what actually goes on in your soul when you pray. What is, what, what is this actually about? Where are you tempted? Where are you tempted not to be with God? But because it's such an isolating place and because it's the place where our flesh comes to the surface so rapidly, 
I find that that most Christians find prayer to be a very lonely, a very mm-hmm. confusing, a very uh, they leave prayer and they feel like that was a mess. I know more people if they read a chapter of scripture every day, they feel they leave feeling less guilty. They if you leave a half an hour of prayer, they leave feeling more guilty. Right. Wow. Because they leave just feeling like that was a mess. Because they haven't fully embraced the gospel when it comes to prayer. And so we wrote the book um, where prayer becomes real to try to help people draw near in the truth. So they were actually giving themselves to Christ. And we're trying to kind of name these temptations in prayer and really show people how much of the things they assume has nothing to do with what God has revealed about himself or what Mm. the Bible says. And it has everything to do with just how they've experienced other people, their parents, how they've um, how they've presupposed God must be like this kind of crazy notion of deity that we we have about God and what he can and cannot receive. And, and that scripture really hasn't shaped their prayers. And so we want to, we want people to draw near in the truth in these ways and, and really show them that, you know, prayer, as one writer said, one of my favorite lines about prayer, I just think it's true, but I also think it's kind of hilarious he, he said, you know, when the Titanic was sinking, no one had a problem with their mind wandering when they prayed. Yeah. And that's a funny line, but it's, it's right. Like you can't, you don't <laughs> imagine someone like the, the Titanic's dipping below the water and suddenly they're, they're thinking about what they're going to do next week. No, no, no. <laughs> they are praying and they're, they're totally in it. And he says, the reason he said it is because they're finally praying about their deepest desires. Wow. wow. And his point was that if you come to pray, like I think we all probably do, and intuitively you start praying in such a way that a good Christian would pray. How should I pray? Rather than just telling, rather than being, becoming a child and praying. My children don't have a problem with their mind wandering when they tell me what they want for Christmas for right. the same reason, right? They come mm. into prayer and they come to me and they come into, and when they pray, they pray for all sorts of stuff that I kind of think is insane. It's just what's on their hearts, yeah. right? <laughs> And they're in it because it's their deepest desires. Whereas mm. when we become adults, we, we tend to stop praying what we deeply desire because we don't think God wants what we desire. Wow. And that's the fantasy that says, I can't draw near. I have to send my avatar to pray for him. <laughs> Maybe God will receive my avatar, right? Yeah. And we, we, just like Israel at the base of the mountain was like, Moses, you go up the scary mountain. You know, like we just send our mm. avatar into pray and yep. hope God will receive it. Wow. And God didn't die for your avatar. God, God died for you. <laughs> and he died for you in your sins. So he's not just afraid of them now and unable to do anything about them. Um, and so this is what we were hoping to kind of shepherd people to the Lord in the truth so that he can actually find help where they need it, which is, which is in their struggles and in their sins. Wow. Yeah. I was just reading last night, um, that passage where, where Jesus says, you know, you are the Lord, you can do anything. Um, mm. if, if, if it, if it possible, would you take this cup from me? And I was just, I was just thinking about just how honest that prayer is mm, Jesus to his yeah. father saying, hey, would you take this cup from me? Even though he knows that his father's will is that he go to his death. Um, And so that being just an example from Jesus himself of this honest type of prayer you're talking about. Yeah, well, and then add to that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. (laughs) I mean, the cry of the cross. You know, I find it interesting. Like I, even though Christians readily say we're, we're, we are being formed in the image of Christ. Like, I don't know any Christian that denies that. Like, that's the goal. 
the image and likeness of Jesus. Like, and yet we don't think that means we'll be led into Gethsemane. Right. Right. We don't think that means we'll be led to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, And that's why I think, you know, so part of the, you know, in the book, we look at the Lord's prayer and we look at the Psalms. It's interesting to look at the biblical prayers, because if you begin praying the Psalms, you real, you realize how much you don't believe God wants to hear his own word. In fact, (laughs) interestingly enough, but one of my favorite comments in the Psalms is in Psalm 44, the Psalmist kind of demands to know if God's fallen asleep on the job. Wow. And that's such a great prayer. Like who of us during the, uh, this pandemic haven't thought at some time, like, how do you even, did you forget something? Like, did you forget to look at your world? Like, mm-hmm. and, and yet I think most of us, if we, tr- if we prayed that we would feel guilty mm-hmm. because we would think that again, we notice the view of God. We have, it is probably the view of our father. It's God can't handle this. We're going to make him angry. Mm-hmm. He's going to respond negatively. And you can't possibly read scripture deeply and held those beliefs. And yet we do mm-hmm. because our theology, our kind of subconscious theology proves more meaningful to us than our conscious theology does. And when we come into prayer, our conscious theology falls apart and our mm-hmm. subconscious theology takes over. And we, we, if we don't pay attention, we realize very quickly we hold all sorts of crazy kind of pagan beliefs about God that we've never bothered holding up to the truth of scripture. Wow. Well, Dr. Strobel, thank you so much for coming on and just blowing our minds for the past hour. (laughs) It was such an honor and blessing. It's good to see you again after our seminary time had ended. Mm -hmm. Um, How can people connect with you or where can people find more of what you got going on? Yeah, well, I'm terrible at social media, but I'm on there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, at Facebook, um, it's just backslash Kyle C. Strobel. And at Twitter, it's just um, backslash Kyle Strobel. Um, and probably Instagram, too. Um, I'm not great at any of them. <laughs> um, but the um, um, I'm sure Talbot also updates my page. I, I imagine that's a thing. Um, but usually, <laughs> usually I, I kind of hop around on there. Um, but you know, for, for me, like the, the reason I've tried to give myself to the, to writing these things for the church is, is really to recover the original vision of evangelicalism that I think we've lost and that has been warped. And so, um, particularly in, in those works Mm -hmm. uh, that that's, that's kind of, if you're trying to get a sense of the vision I'm trying to offer, it it really is, it is a a vision to recover, the, the earliest impetus and mission of evangelicalism. And, and so those works would probably be the best way to catch a, a, a glimpse of what that, that vision is. Yeah. And it is a vision that I think the church needs to hear now. And especially being a church plant, like it's incredible to start our new endeavor here on that vision. So mm. really thankful for your time. Thank you for coming on. Um, it's such a blessing, such an honor and yeah, have a great Wednesday. Have a great day. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll catch up with you later. Great. Thanks so much, guys. It's been so fun to be with you. Thanks. Thanks, guys.